Hello to all of our listeners, and welcome back to the Policy Matters Podcast. I'm Scott Mallory, counsel with Safar Shaw in Sacramento, and this is the Policy Matter Podcast, Independent Contractor Classification, and Uneven Analytical Road. I'm exceedingly excited today to have one of our own, Camille Olson, a veteran partner with Safar Shaw here. Usually I would say what office said person is attached to, but Camille is not attached to any specific office because she does everything everywhere. She's our legislative analyst extraordinaire and also frequent witness providing testimony in front of congressional committees. Camille and I have been discussing this issue for quite some time now, and we're very excited to finally make it happen. Camille, why don't you just introduce yourself real quick and give us a quick background on your experience with independent contractor classification. Sure. Thank you so much, Scott, and thanks for the very generous introduction. So my practice, going back in quite a long time, has focused on developing, clarifying, and clearly defining the opportunities for non-traditional workers in the workplace and in the U.S. economy. And that conversation has usually centered initially on counseling and developing robust life cycle systems at companies that engage with independent workers in a way that creates both obligations as well as rights on both sides of the table, both for the worker as well as for the company. And then that has grown from that practice to a practice that includes litigating issues of misclassification of workers, and then finally trying to help solidify the status of independent workers as part of the U.S. economy and as a legitimate worker in the work environment through things like statutory non-exemptions in in terms of certain laws, such as the Internal Revenue Code, the Fair Labor Standards Act, as well as various state unemployment comp and workers comp laws. And then the NLRA too, right, Camille? Yeah, absolutely. The NLRA as well. Now, there's a lot of recent activity in the NLRA front, as you mentioned, Scott. And then also there's been a lot of discussion in Congress. And there was a roundtable before the Senate Health Committee a couple of years ago that I testified at to provide a discussion format for how would it be possible to provide benefits and certain rights to independent workers recognizing their status without running afoul of various current employee benefits laws in the U.S. So that's sort of the context of, you know, I come to the discussion with. That's excellent. Thanks so much, Camille. I, I think everyone's excited to hear your, your take on what's happening now, right? It's been going on for quite a while, but I mean, as our audience is well aware, the classification of workers as either independent contractors or employees, which you touched on, has been a nationally salient issue for quite some time. But I will note that upon the explosion of the so-called gig economy, you know, we're talking about, you know, the platform economies, your companies that get you groceries, et cetera. That's when the really issue was picked up by the national media and it kind of became fodder for the national media, especially, you know, MSNBC and Fox as well. It became even more salient, even more visible on a national front when California passed what's called AB5 or the ABC test. This test makes it exceedingly difficult to 
ever classify any person, whether or not they want to be an independent contractor, as an independent contractor. Under this test, most workers are considered employees, and the employer is on the hook there for all the cascading obligations that come along with that specific designation. So, Camille, just to kind of give a lay of the land before we get into the substance of what the rule is now or what it might be, what is an independent contractor and why is this so important? Sure, that's it's a great sort of place setting question that you've got, Scott. And the answer differs based on what law you're looking at. So let me just start with the federal structure. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at the Internal Revenue Code, if you're looking at the National Labor Relations Act, and if you're looking at Title VII and the various discrimination laws, the common and ERISA for employee benefits person, the common law of agency is really the test of independent contractor status. So that is really a test that focuses on who retains the right to control the manner and means by which the services are provided. And that's one factor, but not the only factor. And then there is a long list of factors that are also considered. And they were set forth in a case called uh, Nationwide Insurance versus Darden in the Supreme Court. And that's really the one everybody goes back to. So it's a totality of the circumstances test where you look at all of these different factors in terms of the length of the relationship, who provides the tools and the equipment for the relationship. How does the relationship begin and end? How is the worker paid? There are a lot of little factors regarding either the way the work is performed, the way the work is paid for, or what I would describe as the nature of the relationship. And once upon a time, people thought of that as the 20-factor test for under the IRS rules. But it's yep. really those three different buckets that all the factors fall in. That's for those tests. Now, if you go to a state unemployment comp or workers comp laws, some states, that's really the A part of the ABC test, Mm -hmm. uh, whether whether the worker retains the right to control the manner and means by which uh, services are performed in particular, and that that's part of what some states would use as just determining whether someone's entitled to unemployment comp or workers comp. Other states will say that's relevant, but B and C is also relevant. And the B part of the test is not the same. Right. It's not the same. It depends on what state you're in. Right. So, for example, in California, the B part of the test says the worker has to perform services outside of the ordinary course of the service of the work that the service provider or the service recipient receives. Right. Outside of their business. In Illinois, the B part of the test says the worker has to perform services outside of the ordinary course of the business or outside of the business's premises. So either do it outside of the kind of work I perform or do it outside of my premises. So those are very different. And then the C part of the test, which is sometimes used in California, ABC, is the worker has to be engaged in an independently established business. But I would tell you, even though those words may be the same in Massachusetts and California and in some other states that use that C part of the test, Massachusetts interprets it differently than California. So you really have to be very well aware of your local rules. But if you look at something like the Department of Labor and the Fair Labor Standards Act, it employs a completely different test. It's not the common law of agency. It's not the ABC test. It's the economic realities test. And that test borrows from and looks to, as a result of Supreme Court precedent going back over 50 years, a lot of the same factors that you would see 
in nationwide insurance versus Darden? You know, are the services part of the ordinary services of the principal's business? How permanent is the relationship? What is the amount of the alleged contractor's investment in the facilities and equipment? Who is controlling the work that's being performed? Is it the person who's receiving it or the person who's doing the services? What's the opportunity for profit and loss? But that's economic realities. And one way I always think about that test is the question is, if the worker stopped performing services today for that business, would they still be in business? That's sort of one of the ways to look at it. And that's and the Camille, we've talked about this a lot, and I've never heard that. And I think that is such a fantastic analytical tool that I plan on using going forward forever, because that is a great point. Yeah. And you just think about it in terms of our gig workers today, right? Yeah. Most of our gig workers have opportunities with multiple gig companies. Yeah, they, Uber and Lyft is on every, every car. Right. And, you know, they may, you know, through trial and error, decide they like one better than the other and they use one much more than the other, where they have both on at the same time and they decide what they want to do. But that's a very good example of most gig workers actually satisfy that test because if one gig opportunity is gone, they've got the opportunity to just do it on another platform. Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, if, if based on everything you said, Camille, if I'm an employer and I'm trying to make a business decision about, I don't know, a 50-person workforce for a project that I need to get done, what you've told me so far, and based on my own analysis as well, is that it's pretty big. There is no real sort of solid foundation of whether or not, you know, your workers force is going to be classified as an independent contractor or employee. And I think that the recent efforts by the Department of Labor were trying to fix that uncertainty. Would you agree with that, Camille? I would. And I think the only exception to what you're saying, Scott, is what you saw after AB5 in California yeah. with a hundred different specific statutory exactly. non-employee definitions for a particular type of worker. That exists in many laws. So many laws that have the what I would describe as nebulous independent contractor test also have a very specific objective, very short test for, but if you do this under this circumstance, you're out as a non-employee, whether or not you're an independent contractor. So with the exception of those very few industry-specific exemptions, it's very nebulous. That's very interesting. So, I mean, I guess to that end, Camille, I mean, just to, to give a quick background on, I guess, the most recent developments as far as this rule goes, until January 6, 2021, right, like the Fair Labor Standards Act didn't provide a specific regulatory definition of what constitutes an independent contractor. As you said, the certain agency rules were applied. So as such, employers, as Camille said, were subject to a hodgepodge of federal and the IRS 20-factor 20, 20 test rule, the NLRA rule. And they were then subject to state rules, like we talked about the ABC test in Massachusetts, Illinois, and California, how those, even though they're the same test, they've been analyzed differently. As such, at the end of the Donald Trump administration, the DLL issued a final rule on whether an person, a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Essentially, it sets forth two core factors to be considered, which Camille and I recently discussed. Nature and degree of the worker's control over the work. That's kind of like the agency test that we described, right? 
and the worker's opportunity to earn a profit or loss. Camille, anything else you want to say about what the Trump era rule looks like? Indeed, the rule that's currently, as we'll touch on later, that's currently in effect. Yeah, so it's interesting. So if you look back to that very old Supreme Court case or the few cases, there's like a trilogy of cases, the factors that the Trump administration highlighted as the core factors, as you describe them and and as they describe them, were always part of the test. And what the Trump administration did, its Department of Labor at the time, is it said, look, I did this massive historical review of all of the cases and all the interpretations. And it seems to be because it was trying to give guidance to companies that if you're going to win on these two factors, you're likely to be an independent contractor. So, yeah, there's business decisions easier, right? Right. It was trying to give clarity and certainty to workers and to businesses. And it said, you know, it's not that we're saying the others are irrelevant, but we're saying these two usually tell the story. And that was pretty important. It also noted that there are three other factors, the amount of skill required for the work, the degree of permanence of the relationship, and whether the work is part of an integrated unit of production that are also going to be relevant if those two first core factors sort of end up in a tie. One looks like independent contractor, one looks like employee. But the critical thing that I believe that the Trump administration rule did that was so positive was it went through example after example of, and what do we mean by these facts? Where do they put you? Are you independent or are you dependent and perhaps an employee so that you could actually make decisions based on real life current examples, a modern approach, you know, including gig workers, for example, in terms of your own relationship. Another thing that the Trump administration did in its rule is it said that it did not view the fact that a worker who provides services to customers who they get off of a what it's called a multi-sided platform, which is yeah. like all the gig companies. I won't mention any one in particular, but all of their apps right off the app is not an integrated part of production so that if that's how you get the opportunity to provide the service, that doesn't mean you are an employee and that you're part of the company. That's different. That's absolutely different than the way Dr. Weil back in 2015, when he was within the Labor Department and came out with an interpretation of the economic realities test, he viewed it exactly to the opposite. If, in fact, that's how the string of opportunities came, you are part of that integrated operation. And so that is something that we need to look out for. I would say that the Trump administration rule also tried very hard to modernize and to bring not just the current examples, but I would say an even-handed approach. It went back and forth and said, no, what would or what wouldn't be determined. And it didn't take a position that every worker ought to be covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that is a very different approach than the approach I believe we're going to see in the Biden administration. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I think that critics of, of the Trump era rule might point out that, well, if they really wanted to establish this rule, why didn't they uh, promulgate it earlier? 
And I think that the answer to that, Camille, is, well, look at how thorough it was. Look at all the explanations that were provided. It's not like they were just sitting on their hands, right? And indeed, that might have come into play in the next topic, or it might not have. Uh, I think the one thing that really interesting happened was as soon as Joe Biden was elected president, the Department of Labor delayed the effective date on the first. First, delayed the effective date of the rule then proposed withdrawing it, and then in early May just formally withdrew the rule after a bunch of comments were submitting from businesses saying, please don't, we love the, you know, the consistency that this business is giving us, but it was withdrawn regardless. So the Coalition for Workforce Development immediately filed suit, arguing that the withdrawal of the rule violated the Administrative Procedure Act. And the Judge Marsh Cohn in the Eastern District of Texas agreed, ruling that it violated the APA by delaying it, then withdrawing it without going through the proper processes. The DOL has come out and said that they will appeal that ruling, but it's kind of a moot point because they also said that it's already started drafting a notice of proposed rulemaking that is under review by the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. We don't know the details of what that rule will look like yet, but we know that it's already in the White House, so it's probably coming soon. Camille. What do you think the substance of that rule is going to look like? Because if I know Joe Biden and this administration, I think that we're going to get something that is much more akin to the ABC test and less akin to agency or economic realities. Yeah, I understand the concern, Scott, and it's a fair one. And I think we could see this rule come out any day. And by that, I mean, I think it's very important for us to understand today as we sit here today. The Trump administration's independent contractor rule is the law, okay? Notwithstanding the withdrawal, notwithstanding the court cases, it is the effective rule of law for purposes of uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act. Currently, if you go on the website of the Wage and Hour Division, and if you look at fact sheet number 13, you will see the Department of Labor reference the fact that that lawsuit exists and not reference its the Trump rules discussion that we just had here in terms of two core rules and then three, you know, sort of tiebreaker factors, but instead goes back to the early Supreme Court cases and says, we all know it's all about these seven factors, right? What I am sure we're going to see is an interpretation of all seven of those factors. We're not going to see core factors. We're going to see the seven factors be relevant. I don't think we're going to be given as much guidance with respect to how to weigh and consider those factors. And I believe we're going to see what we saw in 2015 in the Weil Interpretive Guidance, which says our belief is the vast majority of workers are not independent contractors, that everybody is an employee. And on that note, I will tell you, I actually spoke at the Department of Labor Employer Forum on June 24th, in which I and many other people urged the Department of Labor to give the Trump administration rule a chance, that it was premature to, in fact, issue new rules, and that, in fact, the modern look at the relationships between workers and their ability to have freedom and flexibility was very important, and it was especially important during the pandemic. I was not alone. I mean, almost universally, every person, not just in that employer forum, but just five days later on June 29th, there was a worker forum in which workers could provide up to two minutes of their position to the solicitor of labor, the wage and hour administrator and others. Almost every single person who spoke as an individual worker 
have the same position. Please yeah. don't take away. Please don't make me be an employee. This is really what works in my life. It's the freedom and flexibility that I want. I don't want to have to come to work every day if I don't want to. I want to pick and choose my opportunities. Please don't take that away from me. And literally, it was the next Monday that the Department of Labor already had in final what this rule is, and it had sent it to OMB for its review. OMB, over the last over July, held stakeholder meetings by invitation only as a listening forum to hear from people what they thought. Of course, none of us has seen the rule. So you really can't comment on what the new rule is. You're just saying, please don't change the rule. We really like the rule that's like the rule that's in place. Um, OMB listened. And I would say any day, very likely sometime in August, we are going to see a new rule from the Department of Labor. It's going to be what's called an NPRM, a notice of proposed rulemaking. And by statute, the Department of Labor has to give interested parties at least 30 days. It may give parties up to 60 days to comment on that rule. And then we're likely to see a new rule rolled out once they consider those comments and finalize the rule, I would say probably by the end of the year. Interesting. Well, I wanted to just note real quick, uh, I think you mentioned Dr. Whale a couple of times. Just for the audience, Dr. Whale was the wage and hour administrator. You spoke about his interpretations of gig worker classification. Joe Biden nominated Dr. Whale to be the administrator of the Wage and Hour Division of the Department of Labor, but he got a little bit too much pushback, and his nomination did not make it through the senatorial process. And now we have a new nominee for that same position, who is currently the acting administrator. But I wonder, right, like what Dr. Whale's influence, regardless of him not getting that confirmation, is on the rule. This is something that we will never know because we're not in those circles. We're not in the DOL. But I just I find that fascinating. One more question, Camille. Uh, we got some good information on what the new rule might look like, what could be in it. I'm sure there'll be challenges to it. And I wonder if you have an opinion on how does the previous challenge or injunction would that affect a new cha a challenge to the new rule? Like, hey, look, this got enjoined because they didn't give it not enough time, right? That's part of the argument that the new rule should be enjoined. Yeah, so I, I will tell you, it was, and, and I filed objections uh, on behalf of a number of different business groups, both to the delay of the effectiveness of the new yeah. rule and then the mm -hmm. withdrawal of the new rule. And it's a very procedural basis that relates to withdrawals and ch during a change of administration as to why the Biden administration was viewed as not following the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act. It really required the Biden administration to give anyone who objected to one of its actions, like the delay, at a minimum 30 days to file those objections. And actually, the administration only gave us 21 days. So it was a pure procedural violation. And once you didn't give us the 30 days, you violated the APA and the final the actions that came you know, after that were not effective. And it was pretty clear cut in my view as to what was required procedurally. And that is how the district court ruled. Here, I think that the objections to a new rule 
are going to be much more substantively based in terms of, you know, it's not like a 30 day question of, did you give us enough time? Unless it's time, yeah. at least 30 days to respond, which I think is highly unlikely. It's going to be much more, was it appropriate? in these circumstances to withdraw a rule, which really had never had any fair opportunity to be used Tested. by businesses yeah. and work. Yeah. Well, um, Camille, this has been uh, beyond fascinating. And I think that if you enjoyed your time here, not to put you on too much pressure, but we should, we should probably have a similar podcast about the joint employer rules. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. Uh, another <laughs> issue that's percolating in many different ways. And I should also mention independent contract issues. You mentioned uh, the National Labor Relations Act. Stay tuned because Atlanta yeah. Opera is a case involving whether or not various stylish and makeup artists for the Atlanta Opera were truly independent contractors or not. And the NLRB earlier this year sought significant amicus input in that. And many, many were filed. And we should be getting a decision in that case probably before the end of the year. So stay tuned to see what the NLRB does on the issue of independent contractor status. That is a huge case that's going to have big reverberations across the, the labor world. So thank you again, Camille. It has been an absolute pleasure having you here. I did want to note for the audience that as soon as that rule comes down, we will be writing in it and about it in the Policy Matters newsletter. And if there's anything crazy or wonky, we'll, we'll see if we can get Camille back here. But she's a busy, busy woman, so we know that. So I just want to extend my thank you to Camille for coming and thank you to all for listening. Thanks, everyone. Good luck and thank you so much, Scott. Uh, yes. You're the best. 